Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Today we uh, continue our series entitled Walking with God. And over the past two weeks, Don and Stephen have looked at walking in faith and humility and walking in his grace. And can I encourage you, if you've not heard uh, either of those messages, to go on to our podcast and to have a, take the chance to have a, a listen. Today we engage with how do we navigate tragedy and heartaches and seemingly helpless situations. When sadness is unbearable, how do we cope with them? And as we do so, I want to begin by acknowledging how difficult, how sensitive a subject like this can be to look at, to consider, and to just re-examine. Because very often when we talk about something like this, it brings up old memories and hurts, and it doesn't necessarily leave us in a good place. By its very nature, as we look at tragedy and heartaches, we need to walk gently and delicately and not to be sound, not to sound cliched and insensitive, to be careful of the language and the tone that we use in such situations. I believe also that we need to further guard our language as to what we attribute to being a tragedy or a life-changing or devastating situation. Tragedy is very personal, but it is never trite nor superficial, and the careful use of words is of paramount importance. I've sometimes heard people say, man, that's a tragedy. No, it's not. As we look at uh, the grand scheme of life, that may be disappointing. It may be really, really um, a difficult time for us. But to say something is a tragedy, we have to be really, really careful. The challenge to distinguish between what is a life event that brings with it intense sadness and sorrow in comparison with what is not common to us all and that is something that is uniquely difficult, is a very real challenge. And we're gonna try and have a look at some of those this evening. From the 15th century until the last quarter of the 20th century, some 40 years ago, Wales, where I am from, was dependent on coal mining. It started in the 15th century, it ended in the early 1980s, and it made up so much of our communities, especially in South Wales. Coal mining was the foremost factor in producing resilient families and communities. It is a strong reason why today rugby and song are so popular, because they had their foundation in coal mining. South Wales was a hotbed of socialism, and was divinely and profoundly impacted by the Welsh revival that spread across the world in 1904 and 1905. Everyone knew someone that was in the the work of the mines. At approximately 9.15 on the 21st of October, 1966, an avalanche raced down a steep hill in a little place called Abervan in South Wales, sucking everything into its path and and causing utter chaos. Landscape, buildings, an entire school was consumed. The avalanche wasn't snow. 
It was coal waste that had slid down a rain-saturated mountainside, which for many years before had been a place they had deposited waste, but was on a natural water spring. It is estimated that nearly 140,000 cubic yards of black slurry cascaded down the hill above this little place called Abavan. It destroyed everything it touched, eventually killing 144 people, 116 of them children sitting in their classroom. It devastated not only a community, it devastated our nation. That Friday night that it happened, an appeal went out to adult men of 18 years of age who lived within a 40-kilometer radius to ask them could they come and gather the next morning to help with the digging away of the coal to see if they could rescue anybody that may be, may be still alive. Such was the desperation. They were asked to bring any shovels and spades that they could to help with that rescue. That evening... My father prepared to go, but such was the overwhelming response to this appeal, they reduced the perimeter down to 20 kilometers so he didn't have to go. Three photographs that will show you how devastating it was. This was a high mountain and the slurry of coal just slipped down and devastated the town of Abavan. These are miners, these are fathers, these are brothers, these are sons, these are grandfathers who were digging out the coal and the mess to see if they could save anybody that was alive. And this is an aerial photograph of what happened at that time. Despite the magnitude of the calamity, Queen Elizabeth at first refused to visit the village, sparking criticism in the press and questions about why she wouldn't go. Finally, after sending her husband, Prince Philip, in her place for a formal visit, she came to Abavan eight days after the disaster to see this, the damage that had been caused and to meet with the survivors. Nearly four decades later, in 2002, the Queen said that not visiting Abavan immediately after the disaster was the biggest regret of her reign. And she says that to this day. And of those of you who follow The Crown on Netflix, you will know all that because it covers that in that series. I say all this to say two things. A second appeal went out that weekend across the churches to all the pastors and ministers and clergy to also gather in a, in a nearby town to go to Abavan and to go from house to house, home to home, and visit those who had suffered, to comfort those in need, to comfort the families, and to comfort the survivors. However, when they met, they were warned to be prepared for a backlash against God for why he did allow, why did he allow such a tragedy to happen? A couple of days later, the hundreds, maybe thousands of pastors who reported back said that no one blamed God at all for what had happened. No one at all said that God was to blame for the accident, that it was an accident that happened and it was a one in a million, but no one blamed God. I'm not sure that that would happen today. It's, 
seemingly very quick we are as people, even as Christians, to blame God for the things that go wrong in our lives. I'm not just talking about culture outside of the church, but I'm talking sometimes within our faith community. God gets blamed. It is God's fault. God, where are you? I am gonna deconvert because God hasn't been to me as he should have been. The second actuality that I want to share is this. One of my mum's closest friend was married to a Baptist pastor and they lived in that village. And she was a school teacher. She had two young children. And on that Friday morning, one child awoke and was so unwell, she decided not to send him to school and she decided to stay at home with him. Whilst the other went to school as normal that morning. As a result of what happened that day, my mother's friend and one child survived, but the other child and sibling was killed. Truly, truly a tragedy. As followers of Christ, we experience the grandeur, the majesty, the awesomeness of the world that God has made and the beauty of his redemption through Jesus Christ but yet we wrestle with unbelievable pain and sadness. So as we begin to dig deeper into this topic, I would like to invite every one of us, as and when it is appropriate to do so, to take from our life that which is an incredible source of intense sadness and heartbreak, and for some it will be tragedy, and to allow the Holy Spirit to minister in his way comfort, and consolation as we unpack a difficult and emotive subject. If thus far in your journey, you're in such a position that you're able to say, Chris, I have never really faced such situations, then can I encourage us to tuck away in the back of our minds some of the things that we will hear together this evening for future recall, for when life does bring such times into our life. For some today, it will be the death of a loved one taken way too soon. For some, it'll be illness that has robbed you of dreams and desires to this day that you believe God had placed in your heart and nothing has come to fruition. A dream unfulfilled brings with it an incredible sense of loss when someone we've or something I should say we've wanted and desired, something we've held on to and put our hope in has fallen away or has never come to fruition again. And we are faced with very real loss and a powerful human need to grieve that. Loss comes when something or someone dies. Loss comes when someone or something, something desired is never born. Whether we see it as big or small, a loss is a loss and it impacts our hearts and lives. And we have to learn to navigate such difficult situations, such heartbreaks, and where they are, tragedies, how do we do that? The marriage that we never thought would fall apart, the marriage that we never thought would break up, the child who wanders away, the job that never materialized, the business that failed. These things that threaten us mentally and emotionally 
of things that we have to bring before God and navigate through. Otherwise, they will restrict us, they will bring us down, they will tie us in grief, in loss, in discontentment, and perhaps even anger. It is interesting to note that Brené Brown, a well-respected Christian writer, captures in essence the pain we, we feel when she wrote these words, everyone will have a story that will break your heart. And if, you really, and if you're really paying attention, most people will have a story that will bring you to your knees. Seeing that we are making a reference to stories, we're gonna do something this evening that I'm not sure that we've done for many, many years, if at all. A few days ago, I had the privilege of chatting and interviewing one of our church community, and it was filmed for us to see this evening. The interview was much longer, but we want to share with you about seven or eight minutes of that interview. Shirley Kaspari, who was here this morning and, and isn't here tonight, is a wonderful lady with an incredible story, who was born in Peter Maritzburg in 1933. And um, I'm always a little bit reluctant to mention ladies' ages. And I said, can I say that you're 88? And she said, please tell everybody. She was so delighted that we were able to celebrate that she was 88. In fact, she was so happy that everyone would know. She was telling me that when she went to war, when she went to school during the war in Peters Marisburg, there were 60 kids in her class because so many people had gone off to hear the war effort, to help the war effort. She met her first husband, Rex, when she was 16. And sometimes later they married and they had three children. Sadly, Rex died suddenly at a young age of a heart attack. Some years later, Shirley and her three children moved to New Zealand where she met and married Hank, her second husband, who also died of a heart attack in his early 50s leaving her with a blended family of six children, three of her own and three stepchildren. And this is my first question to Shirley. I said, Shirley, one of the things you have navigated in your life is tragedy. But she said to me, no, Chris, that's not true. I have navigated tragedy, but I haven't had a tragic life. I have navigated tragedy, but I have not had a tragic life. And that's my first question to her. And I then say to her, please, can you explain what you mean by that? Thank you, guys. I haven't had a tragic life. I had two good marriages. I have four wonderful children. My, I don't know my, my stepdaughters any longer. They, they've all moved away and done other things. But my stepson and I, he lives in Holland now. He's married to a Dutch girl and he has an absolutely adored wee boy. Um, he and I have always been good friends. So I, there's nothing tragic about my life. I was just working in a children's home. They were all children who'd been taken away from their parents because they'd been ill-treated or starved or whatever, or just neglected. So they were quite desperately needy children. We were, so, we were short staff. You couldn't get staff to work who wanted to work with people like children like that. Right. So I was working sort of all day and all night. And, um, and it took its toll on you? I finally crashed, yes. yes. 
my, my aunt was dad's sister. She was also my godmother. And she ran a boarding, boarding, hosp uh, boarding hostel, no, a boarding house. Right, yeah. In Grahamstown, which was about 500 miles away from where mum and dad were. It was in Grahamstown that I met Rex, yes. He was, he was boarding in, aunt, in my aunt's boarding house. At that time, he was working in a building society. Okay. It was after, after we were married, some time after we were married, that he moved to Pepsi-Cola. I don't remember an awful lot about it. He, you mean his, the fatal heart, his fatal heart yes. attack? Yeah. He was playing golf. He was playing golf, and he went to hit the ball and dropped dead. And then one of his friends had to come and t came and tell, to tell me, because there was no official sort of organization in South Africa at that time anyway, that where somebody would come to the house and somebody trained to do, to hand on this tragic news. And so Harold just came to the house and said, Shirley, I don't know how to tell you this, but Rex is dead. Um, I'm quite sure that if, if he had known that he had a heart condition, he would have told me. Yeah. But um, yeah, so he just dropped dead. I can't remember how the children took it. I think I was in such a state of total disbelief and shock that I, I was incapable of absorbing how anybody else was feeling. I do know that they, they have since said that they felt completely lost. They had no idea how we could possibly live without a dad. I mean, they, they adored him as their father. Yes. Um, and he, he's thoroughly spoiled all his, all the children, <laughs> children. But um, there was no social welfare, of course, in South Africa. I don't know whether there is now, but there certainly wasn't then. And suddenly, I had nothing. I don't know how people get through tragedy without Jesus. I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. I was, I was sad, deeply saddened, apart from losing him myself by the fact that the children would have no dad and that James was so young he wouldn't, re wouldn't remember him because he was only four. It was, he would never, he didn't have a hope of remembering him. My daughter was at uh, Waikato Polytech and I used to pick her up, drop her off and, and pick her up and she knew Hank he was one of her lecturers, and so we, we met. His wife had died some time before. She died of cancer. She died of cancer, yes. And um, so, so we met, and we were both on our own, and we sort of, so there was a sort of fellow feeling of both of us having been widowed, and we just became friends. And then it slowly developed into more than a friendship. Yes, he had, he had a heart attack and was in hospital, but he was okay, he came home. He'd been sort of okay, but he wasn't really, really well. And then he had a heart attack at night. And we were living out in Rotakari on a 10-acre section. And the thought of, of an ambulance trying to find their way to a 10-acre section somewhere in Rotakari. Yeah. So I put him in the car and took him into hospital. And they promptly put him to, put him to bed and specialists came and, had, had, and examined him. And told me that I was okay to go home. So I did. Only it wasn't okay, because he died. It just had to be done. 
It had to be done, so I did it. If something has to be done, there's only one way of getting through it, and that's by doing it. Yeah. And they were, they were very brave, all of them. There were no hysterics, no screaming and yelling or anything like that. I guess they had already lost a mother, yeah. and my children had, had lost their father, so that it was a repeat of what they'd already gone through. So I guess they just knew a bit more how to cope with it. No, why would it shake my faith? They were still human beings with normal human, human bodies, and they both worked incredibly hard, and they both pushed their bodies beyond the limit that they could cope with. One night, I wasn't sleeping, which I guess is pretty normal when you've lost a second husband. And, and Jesus came and stood next to my bed. I can still see him standing next to my bed. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't move. He just stood there. And all the anger, because there was anger, and all the bitterness, and all the grief just poured out of me. And I went to sleep. I mean, I was still in grief when I woke up the next morning, but it wasn't the hopeless grief that it had been before. He didn't need to say a word. He just stood there, and it just poured out of me, just drained out of me. And I was, I wasn't okay. I wasn't, I wasn't no longer, I was no, not in no grief anymore. But the terrible grief and the, and the, feeling of total total hopelessness had gone. I was angry because this was the second time and it's not fair okay. to do it twice. No. But the anger was all gone. You can't be bitter and and have your children grow up normal people. I don't think I ever thought about it, thought it through like that. I mean, I, in fact, I'm quite sure I never thought it through like that. It was just the way things were. I had two good marriages. I had two great marriages. It's not much point looking at the negative, is there? No. It, it would only make you miserable and bitter and... Twisted. Yeah, I don't see the point. <laughs> I said to my wife when I got home, when I said to Dawn the following day, I said that was been one of the greatest privileges of my life, to sit down with her for about an hour and just to talk and just to see the wonderful sweetness of her spirit. Uh, just so amazing. Some of the things that I know that I will take away from that is, I've, she says, I've known tragedy, but I've not had a tragic life. She said, I've had two great marriages, and how many people can say that? And there was something about that no sense of bitterness, the incredible sense of a sweetness in her spirit was palpable, something of allowing God to do a work in your life. There is an old Arab proverb that says all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. If you never have any down times, dark days, gloomy times in your life, you will be dried up. You'll have no depth to yourself, no maturity. It takes good times and bad times to make a mature person. Life is a mixture of pain and pleasure, of victory and defeat, of success and failure, of mountain tops and valleys. Thankfully, on such occasions, and whilst maybe not all our questions are fully answered and banished, we have the wonderful, wonderful resource of the book of Psalms. 
The Psalms are where we find rich resources to help us through times of difficulty and pain. They show us how to mourn in our pain and to look to God for his help. For what we're looking at today, we could go to a number of Psalms. We could turn to Psalm 88, which initially, when you read it, it's incredibly dark and gloomy and full of despair. And many people just want to quickly read over it. But it is such a good Psalm in these situations. There is also Psalm 23, which all of us know so well. And for many, it is a go-to Psalm. However, in the time that we have left this evening, I want to turn our attention to Psalm 84, which Stephen referenced last week and which Charles Spurgeon said, it is the sweetest of all Psalms. I want to read it to us. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, indeed, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, happy are those who live in your house ever singing your praise, Selah. Happy are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, which means weeping and sorrow and heartache, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, happy is everyone who trusts in you. The Bible is full of valley-like language to describe tough seasons. Joshua talks about the valley of calamity. David, the psalmist, talks about the valley of death. Hosea talks about the valley of trouble. And as we have just read here, Psalm 84 talks about the valley of weeping and intense sadness. And of course, the question is, how do we approach such a difficult and challenging and real situation and come out the other end? And I want to share with you this evening three or four very, very brief and simple points to help us to face tragedy and heartache and, and desperation and loss, and just to see how they can help us in such times. You know, the first thing that I want us, says he losing his notes, is that valleys are inevitable and impartial. They are going to happen and no one is immune to them. Everyone is going to have valley experiences and no one is going to escape them. Tim Keller writes, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Valleys happen in and throughout our lives 
And we know this not because it is a lack of faith or a fatalism that says, oh, I mean, if I have a good life, something's about to go wrong. We know it's gonna happen because Jesus tells us it's gonna happen. Jesus was very realistic about it. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It is not a matter of if, it's when. It's going to happen. We are going to have difficulty, disappointment, discouragement in our life. There will be times of suffering and sorrow and sickness. There will be times of frustration, fatigue, and failure. And I have no desire whatsoever to be pessimistic or faithless or lacking faith in a living God who can do all things, but this is the reality of life and it has a foundation in scripture. No one is insulated from pain and sorrow. No one gets to skate through life problem-free. Everyone has problems, good people and bad people. Problems, trials, difficulties, and downtimes affect us all. And they don't mean that you are a bad person. It simply means you are a person. It doesn't mean that you're a bad human being. It means you are a human being. The Bible is very clear that good things happen to bad people and sometimes bad things happen to good people. Valleys are impartial. They don't care how good or bad or whatever you are. The reality is we live in a fallen world. And sometimes you hear so much on, the, on TV or books about having a life of prosperity and goodness and all those good things that all the blessings of God will come to you. They may, but there will also be valleys and there will also be downtimes. Matthew 5, 20, 45, Jesus says, it rains on the just and on the unjust too. I read a great quote, it says, the, the good life is not about having everything you wanted. It's about having God, even if it's in the midst of nothing you wanted. Secondly, valleys cause us to walk by faith because they are unpredictable. We can't plan them, time them, or schedule them. Valleys are always unexpected. They usually come at the worst time when we don't have time, when we're unprepared, they just happen. They are always most inconvenient. It would be great if we could schedule our difficult times, our valley experiences, but we can't plan like that. They just come along, they are so, so unpredictable. Have you noticed, even in a micro of that, how a good day can turn into a bad day by a phone call or a text that you received or you didn't receive. Valleys just happen. And because of what Don said two weeks ago about walking in faith and walking in humbly, this is so good for us to hear time and time again. If you have not heard him on the podcast, please can I encourage you to do it. We are called to walk by faith and we are to walk humbly before our God because only he knows what our future is all about. You know, we don't learn faith by simply reading books or listening to sermons or listening to things on podcast. The school of faith is located in the depths of the valley, not on the mountainside. I, <laughs> I shared this this morning. If you'd said to me two years ago, 
that I would be a grandfather, but I wouldn't be able to see my grandson because of COVID, I'd have smiled at you. Because I didn't know what COVID was then, and I didn't know I was going to be a grandfather. Over the last few weeks, God and I have had a little bit of a disagreement. I wouldn't say disagreement, he won. Um, and you know when, if you had a parent that put you in your place, you remember? Or if you're in school and they put you in your place, God put me in my place over this last week or so. And as you know, I said a couple of weeks ago and Don announced that we became grandparents and they live back in the UK. And every time we get a cute photograph and they're all cute and besotted already, I said I'd never be a besotted grandfather, but I am. You get these photographs that come through and there's something within us that says, man, I wish we could be there. I wish we could see them. Why can't we be there? Jolly COVID, all those things. And it wasn't that I was being particularly grumpy, but there was a little bit of a, I don't know, a burr under the saddle between God and myself. And you know something, and it was, I, it was justified. So many people came to me and said, man, it must be so hard that you can't see your grandson. And I'm saying, listen, God, they're agreeing with me. But then I just felt God impress in my spirit. He said, son, you are so privileged to be a grandfather. You are so privileged to have a grandson that is healthy and whole. You are so blessed to have a daughter-in-law that came through safely. You are so blessed that you have a son and a daughter-in-law in your life that wants to share their, their child with you. You are so blessed that you get to Zoom with them three or four times a week. You are so blessed. And I just felt God put me in my place. Does that mean that we don't, we're disappointed that we haven't seen them? Of course we're disappointed. But you know, in the grand scheme of life, we worship and we follow a God in faith and humbly because he knows what is the best. It may not be the thing that we would want it to be like, but he knows. And God's lesson plans for us may involve boat rides across stormy seas, fiery furnaces, or journeys through dark valleys, but we are called to walk humbly and in faith before him. In the tragedy in the valleys, God is there too, and they have a purpose. I said in my introduction that part of the importance of addressing such a subject as this is not to sound trite and superficial. And right here is a really, really powerful example of this. I want to tread gently. We must never glibly or casually say to anyone that is going through the hellishness of a heartbreak or a valley experience, don't forget, God is with you. You know something, that can be the worst thing that anybody can say to you. It's like a red rag to a bull. Well, maybe it's just my experience. You know, sometimes we have to be really, really careful, but you know, it's true. And that is the tension that we hold. Rick and Kay Warren, they are pastors and authors and they the senior pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California. Some of you will have read this stuff or heard them. Their son, I think his name was Michael, died three or four years ago because of suicide. And Kay Warren wrote these incredible words. 
She said, when my son died, it felt like my faith had been reduced to ashes. I could walk away from God, but where could I go? It's not like the world has anything to offer. I was stuck with God, but he didn't seem like a very good option at the time. It's incredible honesty, incredible honesty. See, faith is built in the valleys of life, but oh, I wish this wasn't the case. You see, when everything is going fine and great, we can be tempted to live life like we don't really know God. We can just pay him, as it were, a passing respect. That when we come face to face with a dark valley, you know, we get on our knees, we cry out to him, we seek him like never before, and the transaction of faith is done and we are made more and more into his image. You know, faith is strengthened in the valleys when we don't feel like serving and trusting and praising him and sometimes doubting his very reality. This is where faith is tested, not in the good times, but in the valleys. Fourthly and lastly, so bring this to a close. In such times, let's not settle for following our heart. In the wealth that is Psalm 84, I find verse five to probably be the most pivotal verse of the whole Psalm. It says this, happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. Why is this so important? Well, because this language, this thought, this idea is so countercultural today, especially to the faith communities of church. And to many, this is counterculture. To many Christians, this is countercultural. The world is constantly telling us and sometimes the churches as well, to look within ourselves, to study the compass of our heart, to follow wherever our passion leads. You do you, we hear. It's twee, but I'm not even sure it's theologically correct. We've heard it so many times that we don't really recognize its dangers. Something came up on an Instagram feed the other day which said something very similar. I was in, in somewhere else and it was on a coffee mug and I've seen it on t-shirts and I've seen it on artwork, even in Christian bookshops. Follow your heart. But is it right to follow our heart? Will following our heart even make us happy even if we weren't in such challenging times? You know, but it says, I will give you the desires of your heart. It says, delight yourself in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. Take the whole of Psalm 34, 37, verse four. I know that sometimes if I'd followed my heart, I would have ended up in real trouble. As a young man, as a middle-aged man, as I get older, sometimes if I'd, been, if I'd followed my heart, I would not have been here today. I know that if unchecked, my heart in such times we are looking at this evening will take me to discontent, will take me to resentment, will take me to bitterness and to doubt, and it will bend me out of shape if I follow my own heart. And I can't afford to go there. So many people strive to follow their heart, truly believing that it's a, a valid guide. You know, scripture tells us in Jeremiah 17 verse nine that the heart is the most deceitful of all things. 
So why would we want to follow something that would follow, lead us astray? You see, Psalm 84 has no patience for such thing. It's saying true joy, it insists, is not having an internal compass that says, follow me, but one that says, follow him. Follow his plans for us. Happy are those whose hearts are the highways to Zion, that we choose to set our lives by his compass, that we choose to believe the things and the promises and the words that he has given us in this book, that we choose to follow his will and not have our own way, that our hearts are set on the highways to Zion, which he has made perfectly clear to us all. Musicians, please come and join me. Going to push pause there for tonight and next week we're going to continue with how we navigate transition. This evening, I just want to finish this and I didn't really have an easy way to finish because there's no easy answer, is there? In the sense, people may be in heartache, they may be in tragedy, uh, tragic situations, but you can't bring that to an end. But this is what I want to do. Please, will you stand as we come and worship? I want to leave us with one takeaway thought. Earlier, we heard from Kay Warren what she said when her son Michael died. I want to leave us with what Rick Warren wrote about the very same situation. I'd rather walk with God and not have my questions answered than to walk with God and have my questions answered. I'd rather walk with him and not have my questions answered than not walk with God and have my questions answered. Sometimes we just have to choose to walk in faith humbly before him in his grace and in that we will be able to navigate tragedy and heartache and loss. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.